So I want to um, ask you what you're counting on to save you. Um, what is there that you believe in that will be able to pull you, uh, and not just you, but the entire world, out of uh, the train wreck that we see our world in, this inevitable crash uh, that everything in society seems to be heading towards and just appears so imminent as we look around it. And uh, your, your worldview of how you see the world and perceive the world, it needs to be able to explain the undeniable realities of the universe you see around you, of everything you see. Now, let me tell you something I learned this week. And you may have already known this. Now, this island has taught me a lot of stuff while I've been here, and I'm very grateful for that. So this past week, uh, as sometimes happens, uh, BPL kind of drops out, and you lose power. So we lost mainland power this week. So what do you do? You know, you get out the extension cord, you get out the generator, you plug it up, you make sure everything in the refrigerator doesn't die. And so uh, I went to that process. I rolled out the extension cord and plugged it into the little generator and started it up and went about my business of what you can do without a lot of electricity. And... Um, the one thing that, I, uh, that turns out that um, in order to preserve that stuff in your refrigerator, you have to make that final connection. Yes, you have to plug it in. Yeah. So if you turn on the generator and you roll out the cord and you fire it up, but you haven't made that final connection to the refrigerator, all that stuff in there you're trying to preserve and let satisfy you and preserve you and feed you, if you don't make that final connection to the power source and change what feeds you, then you also will be like a refrigerator without power and the things that you expect to sustain, you won't. And so I ask you about that today. Or, or what are you trying to use to preserve your life and sustain you? What is it uh, in you that feeds you and keeps you from rot and decay? Now, um, so the other thing I'd like to point out to you is something you already know. This is not my home, right? This island is not my home. My citizenship is in a different place. And as, I, as hard as I try and fit in here, I'm not Bahamian. As much as I love the Bahamian people, I am not Bahamian. But let me, let me just share one more thing with you. Your citizenship is not here either. Your citizenship is not in America or the Abacus or the Bahamas. Followers of Christ, your citizenship is in heaven. That's what the scripture tells us. It says this um, in uh, Philippians 3.20. It says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So are you ready to go home? <laughs> now, there was a Sunday school teacher one Sunday. She was teaching this elementary class of children about heaven and how great it was. And, uh, and if you believe in Jesus, when you die, you can go to heaven. And so she asked for a show of hands. And she said, how many of you are ready to go to heaven? And everybody raised their hands. You know, kids are very excited about stuff, except for Johnny. Little Johnny was in the back. He didn't raise his hand. The teacher became very concerned. She said, Johnny, what's wrong? You don't want to go to heaven when you die? And he said, oh, no, ma'am. I'm sorry. I misunderstood what you were seven. Saying, I thought you were getting a group up right now to go to heaven. <laughs> so, um, so are you ready to be free? You ready to be delivered from those things that have held you back and bound you up? Are you ready to receive your new life? Um, and, uh, and, and I'm not from here. I was born in America. And we have a different form of government in America than you do. And it's not perfect, uh, but it's very unique. It's a good government. And one of the things that's very unique about the American form of government um, is the presidency. Now, the president in America has some very unique powers. And one of those powers is by the Constitution of our government is the, what's called the power of the pardon. The American presidents are given a power to pardon people for crimes. So... They can release them from jail 
Uh, they can reduce their sentences. Uh, they can restore all their rights or some of their rights. It's up to them. The citizens can be forgiven for crimes, and it's a power that's uncontested. No matter if you disagree with what the president's doing or who he's picking to give this pardon to, you have no power. Nobody can stop him. It's his, his prerogative as president. Now, once there was an American president named Andrew Jackson. Now, you've probably seen his picture before. He's on the $20 bill. The American 20 has Andrew Jackson on it. Now, in the year 1833, um, he was told of a case of a man named George Wilson who'd robbed uh, the U.S. mail. He was captured and he was put in jail. He was tried and then he was sentenced to death. That was a pretty, pretty horrific thing. He, I believe he murdered someone in the process of that robbery. Now, the President Jackson at the time heard about the story of George Wilson, and he was persuaded to issue this man a pardon. So he was granted a full pardon for his crimes, and he would no longer face the death penalty. Now, when the news of the pardon reached the man in prison, George Wilson refused to accept it. The warden wasn't quite sure what to do. This had never happened where someone received a, a presidential pardon and they refused to accept it. Word went back to the White House and the president did not know what to do. They weren't sure what was going to happen. So the uh, pardon was sent back to the man again and said, maybe you misunderstood what was going on here. You do not have to face death. You are free to go. The president has pardoned you of all these crimes. And once again, he said he would rather face death than receive his pardon. This had never happened before, and no one knew what to do, so they sent it to the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, to decide what do you do with someone who is facing death, has received the pardon, does not have to ex accept death, but they refuse to receive the pardon. And the court decided this, that in order to receive the benefits of a pardon, the accused must be willing to accept it and to receive it. Now, please do not think that just because Jesus has died for all the sins of the world, that you are automatically forgiven for your crimes against his kingdom. You must be willing to receive that forgiveness and that pardon that's extended to you. When Jesus died for all the sins of the world, the past, the present, and the future, that infinite blood that was poured out, that divine blood, it was poured out to cover all those sins, but we have to agree and align and cooperate with that to receive that forgiveness, and you must agree to receive it. Now, as we look at all the belief systems in the world today, whether we agree with them or not, we can find some grain of truth, some element of truth in all of them. And maybe they diagnose a problem correctly. Maybe they see some of the things that are wrong with the world today, and maybe they recognize some of the failures in our world. And uh, maybe they prescribe some of the right treatments to make these things right again. But those belief systems, whether they are describing a deity or if they're describing a political system, if they are absence of God and they seek to straighten out the world without God and they want to use education or some political system to do it, they're going to fail because humanity cannot be made right without God. People have to be connected to God. So um, the real test of a belief system is this, is how it responds to everything in life. It's not enough just that you're identifying what the illness is with the problem, what the symptoms are with what's wrong. You really have to just not isolate those symptoms. You have to clearly find fault and failures in people in the world, but you have to hope that you can see that there's an imperative on how you find it completely necessary for all of these things to agree with each other and correlate and correspond. The belief system has to answer all the questions. It has to address them, and they can't contradict each other. 
and they need to address all the issues that we face in life. So I'm going to engage you today in a pattern of thought and some ideas and a mental discussion about this. And some of the things I may say might shock you, might surprise you, but I need you to know that um, I'm on my way out the door. Bless you. And I feel it's important for me to maybe lob one last spiritual grenade in your direction and hope that that explosion can dislodge you from any uh, spiritual issues you have. Maybe it can shake you and jar you and wake you up from your spiritual slumber and it can uh, bring you around to uh, the right way of thinking about God. So I hope today that when you and I leave here today, that uh, my only hope is that you will have found that all the answers in life are only in one person. They're in the person of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel. And he's the king who will shortly come to complete the work he started. He will set up his kingdom. He will ascend the throne of David and he will rule from Jerusalem. So as we begin that whole big idea, let's say a prayer. Father God, we are very grateful that you have called us together today to focus on you. I ask you, Lord, to, to let these words be your words, to let your spirit work in me and in our hearts here together today. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to uh, see you clearly for who you are and how you want to work in our lives and be in our lives. Help us to humble ourselves and submit to that truth today. I ask you to please empower me with these words. Let they uh, speak to our hearts today and change us in the name of Jesus. So what is a belief system? Well, a belief system is, is a collection of experiences that will crystallize all the practices you have in your life of how you live and treat people and what you do. They represent everything that you've experienced in your life. And whether you realize it or not, it may have never written it down, you have a belief system. That system determines everything you do, all the choices you make and how you treat people. And every person has one. You, you might not realize it and you may have never analyzed it. But here's what it looks like. As you've gone through life, you've constantly asked yourself a few questions without ever realizing it. And it may have been a while since you put these questions in the forefront of your mind. But you ask yourself some basic questions. You ask yourself, who am I? Why am I here? Where did I come from? And where am I going? How did this world start? Why is it here? What's the meaning and purpose of life? You ask yourself a question about how am I supposed to treat people in this life? And the last question we all ask ourselves is where do I go when I die? What happens when this life is over? What happens to that person I love when I can no longer commune with them and speak with them and talk with them and interact with them? And your belief system answers all those questions. And the answers to those questions act like a rudder in your life like it is on the back of a boat, and that will guide you through the course of your life, directing you in different directions. That is your belief system. So let me say this. God is not an American. Sometimes when people come from America and they proclaim the gospel of Christ, and they preach the Bible, they get this idea that, well, you're just preaching an American God. God is not an American, all right? Let me tell you this, because sometimes you hear that from people in a pulpit. God is not a Republican. God is not a Democrat. God is not a liberal progressive. God is a monarchist. That's why we call him king of the universe. That's why we call his son Jesus king, the king of glory. 
And firstly, I want to address the belief system that, that grips, absolutely grips our world today. It shows up everywhere. It shows up in academia. It shows up in media. It shows up in governments. And it's from everywhere across the world. It's across China, the Americas, Australia, Europe, Africa. It's everywhere. Now, this belief system was based on the writings of a man who once studied theology. He embraced God, but he turned away from his heavenly father when his earthly father made a decision to turn away from God. This boy was the oldest son of nine in a family. He was born in a Jewish family. He came from a long line of rabbis. He loved Judaism and the Torah. He would always be in temple studying. And one day his family moved. And when they moved to this new village, they found out something. There was not a Jewish temple. There was not a Jewish synagogue. In fact, most of the people in the village were Lutherans, Christian Lutherans. And shortly after moving there, the dad came home one day and he announced to the family that they were no longer Jewish. They had become Lutheran because all the business in, the, in this village was done by Lutherans. And if you want to stay in business, you better be a Lutheran. And this young man was crushed. He felt betrayed by his father that day because his dad has turned his back on the God of the Torah. He had embraced the God of convenience and the God of commerce to advance his own life. And young Carl that day was never the same. And that boy grew up in Germany. He grew up with hatred in his heart. Now, he saw the world and the bad things in the world. And he diagnosed some of the problems of society correctly. But he completely misdiagnosed the solution. That boy grew up to become Karl Marx. His writings were published in 1848 with, along with his German thinker, Frederick Engels. And they introduced the world to the concept of socialism in a book called The Communist Manifesto. And the end results of the influence of that young man and that father and what he did to him has influenced people and governments over the past century. And as a result of that, nearly 200 million people have died. Now claim what you want to about Christ and Christians and the Crusades and people hurt wearing the robes of Christ. I will tell you this, all those misguided people who acted out in the name of Christ, violated the teachings of Christ. They did not align them with the words of Christ. They did horrible things in the names of Christ without adhering to the teachings of Christ. However, all of what flows from the belief system of Marx and Engels is exactly what they prescribe to happen. It's exactly what should come from the belief system of socialism. The redistribution of wealth will not fix the problems of man. Humanity's greatest problem is a cancer. It's called sin. Money does not fix you. Education does not fix you. Political systems will not fix you. It is your relationship with God that will fix you. One of the greatest flaws of socialism and the socialist approach to the evils and injustices of our world today is they refuse to acknowledge that there is a God. In socialism, the government is God. The state is God. Well, I stand to tell you today, the government is not God, no matter how hard it tries to play God or act like God, there's only one God and the government is not God. The next massive failure that the system of thought has is this. It fails to answer the person, the personal question of origin, of how the universe began. Socialism embraces evolution and evolution to explain the origins of all we see around us. Evolution is a fairy tale for grown-ups who want to justify their own wickedness by never having to face a judge at the end of life. There are so many flaws in the theory of evolution. And again, I want to say the theory of evolution 
It is sadly taught and embraced by people all over the world in educational systems, and it does not fit with reality. The lack of physical evidence and the fossil record makes it inevitable that there's one of the faults of evolution. Another is the inevitable um, inability for chemicals to evolve and change for a non-animated element to grow into this collection of elements that suddenly has life and intelligence and meaning and consciousness and creativity and emotion and reasoning and memory. All the things that we have that were given to us by God. There's a complexity of multiple dependent systems that we see today in our world. You know this from how you spend your time in the water. How many things, one thing depends on the other for its life. And they're all connected. They cannot just come along one after the other. They have to all happen at the same time. They must spontaneously occur at the same time. And only the power of the divine can speak that creativity into our reality. I want to tell you one more thing about the flaw of evolution. If I were to have here to, well, let me say this. The flaws of evolution, the, the falsehoods that are taught through that, those teachings are the basis on which things like the Holocaust occurred. The survivors of the concentration camps will tell you that that is where it all started. It didn't start in the Nazi hall meeting. It all started when they said people have different values based on who they are and where they are and what the physical makeup is. And as a result of that, they were able to devalue life. When they had no God, they could say, this person can die. This person can be eliminated. This person can go away. And they have no judge to face. And they all did it in the name of science. When you have this thing, those who are in power can eliminate whoever they want and they no longer have to face whatever is coming to them because they have, they have, uh, they have the, changed their whole meaning of life. There's no longer one there to help them in their grand evolution of man and society. And therefore, you can imprison whoever you want. You can deny them food and resources and freedom and the right to worship any god they want. So just listen to this one point. If you believe in science, if you agree that mathematics is a system which cannot lie, the numbers never lie, that two plus two is always going to equal four. There is a fine-tuning in the universe around us today, a fine-tuning with the ratios of gravity, the weak and strong nuclear forces. There's a whole range of 20 different instruments of measurement that scientists use to, uh, to calibrate and look at the world around us. If we were to take those 20 parameters and I had them arrayed behind me with some sort of control panel, and I were to ask any one of you to come up here and walk up behind me and adjust just one of these 20 knobs by just one-tenth of a degree, one of the smallest amounts of adjustment. The scientists who study this tell us that if you made that small adjustment to one of these 20 factors, the entire universe around us would cease to exist. It would all go away. It is that finely tuned. It is the ratios which are beyond mathematical probability for chance and time and matter to put them together. It had to be designed. It had to be controlled. It had to be put together. One adjustment among 20 is just one slight change and the universe never starts. It cannot sustain itself. It will collapse out of existence. And you want to tell me that we're alone, that there's no grand maker, no grand weaver behind all we see and experience, putting it all together, directing creation, calling the shots and revealing himself to us, revealing himself in creation, in life, through his word, 
Now, if you say you're still a follower of science and you are willing to receive this information and look at it and you still refuse to believe there is a God, a designer, a maker, then you're no longer a person of science. You've become a follower of a religion, a religion of man that's disguised as science. In fact, has overwhelmingly incontrovertible evidence that says the truth, that you were made by God. This world was made by God. It had a beginning. It has a maker. And that maker is obviously a supreme being beyond where we are today. You see, if your belief system that you have, that you build up in your mind, and you accept as guiding principles of your life, it cannot correspond with the evidence that we see around us about the universe and about your experiences in life. And if it cannot correspond those answers one to the other, then you either have a system that's contradicting itself and the evidence or is contradicting the other answers you have. And then that belief system, that religious system, that political system, it is wrong. Now your morals will flow directly from your beliefs. Your answers to the I want to look at, excuse me, I have one technical issue. I want to look at Eastern religions, and two in particular, Buddhism and Hinduism. Now, I want to approach these two for a particular reason, because I have observed the subtle language of those belief systems among you. And you may never even realize that they are part of you, and that you're talking about them, and they're coming out. So I want to talk to you about this. Firstly, origin. How did everything get here? And where did it start and how did life begin? As a serious student or follower of Buddhism or Hinduism, you need to understand that those two belief systems are greatly flawed when it comes to origin. Um, I visited uh, Myanmar, which is a country in Southeast Asia where Buddhism is prevalent. The largest Buddhist temple in the world is located there in Rangoon. It's called the Shui Degong. Buddhists do not have an answer for the question of origin. The Buddhist refuses to answer the question of how the world begins. Hinduism, on the other hand, they do have an answer for how the world begins. And in particular, they tell us that the planet Earth is resting on the back of four giant elephants. And those elephants are standing on the back of a giant tortoise. And that tortoise is standing on the back of another tortoise. And that tortoise is standing on the back of another tortoise, and his tortoise is all the way down to infinity. That's what they believe. That's what their belief system teaches them. Now, I hate to break it to those people who are Hindus, but my God, the true God, the loving God, he hung the earth on nothing, 
According to my Bible in Job 26, 7, he established the circle of the earth in Job 27, 10 and Isaiah 44, 40, 22. He stretched out the heavens like a garment. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, Jeremiah 10, 12 through 13, Isaiah 51, 6 and 13. Scientists refer to the fabric, the fabric of space time. And scripture says God stretched it out like a garment. Garments are fabrics. The word of God aligns completely with our observation of science today. Furthermore, in uh, Jeremiah 31, 37, it describes the ever-expanding universe. Scientists today will tell us when they observe the universe and look out far in the distance, the universe is continuing to expand. It says, the Bible says our universe is immeasurable. In Psalm uh, 47, 10, it refers to the shields of the earth. Today we know that our earth is protected from the cosmic rays from the sun. We have magnetic shields. We have ionic shields, and they block out dangerous uh, cosmic rays that come from the sun that will cause things like cancer. The Bible aligns itself correctly with the observable universe. It aligns itself with the holy writ that we see in Scripture for how we observe our universe to be. Now, let me move from that question of origin with these Eastern religions and I, I'm please begging you, please don't embrace Eastern religions, okay, in any way, because they will lead you down the wrong path. I'm going to bring up another issue about morality. Eastern religions have something called karma. Now, I'm sure you've heard someone say in conversation, oh, that's bad karma. You shouldn't do that, right? You've probably heard it in a movie or a book or maybe even use it yourself to describe something that's going on. And, you know, in the West, we hear that and we think, oh, it's pretty cool. I can be all hip and jive and say karma. Now, the concept of karma is this. The reality of karma and the true teaching of karma in Hindu and Buddhism is this. You have lived before. You are now reincarnated from your previous life. And your life that you experience today is going to be played out and karma is going to correct you. Your sins in the past when you lived, when you were bad, those things you did before you were born are going to be corrected now and you will suffer. And that suffering will be played out on you and your family based on what you did in your previous life, even though you don't know what it was or why you did it or the sins you committed. And you will go through life and you will experience pain and you'll experience joy based on what happened in your previous life, even though you don't remember it. And there's no evidence for it ever happening to you. And it seems very unfair to me as a belief system. I have a huge problem with this whole idea of karma. Now, if you respond correctly to the suffering you experience in life, karma says that in when you die, in your next life, you'll be reborn, you will be raised up, and you'll be brought into a new life, and you'll be improved and better. And you will go through this process over and over again until finally you reach the goal of every good Buddhist to be born into nothingness. That's the ultimate goal of those who practice Buddhism, is to reach not a celestial home like a Christian, but or a place of ease and comfort where you can be reunited with your loved ones from the past. No. Your perfect goal of a Buddhist is to arrive into nothingness, to go out of existence, which is not a very fun thought to me. Now, let me explain this in, in real life terms. I believe in a God that knows my name, who knows me, who hears my cry when I'm in pain who I can reach out to and can help me when I hurt, who I can turn to in moments of joy and triumph 
and celebrate with him. I can commune with him. I can Let me just put it in practical terms. When your neighbor's house is on fire and you see it's on fire, you cannot help them. Because karma is punishing them now for something they did in the past that was bad. And if you go over and help them, you are interfering with the suffering they have to endure in this life. And then you are now calling karma in on you and it will have to wound you for helping them. Do you see this? Is that just crazy? Now, this is very opposite of what we're taught in Scripture. We're taught to love our neighbors as ourselves, right? We're taught to reach out and be selfless and help others and help them when they're in hurt and need. And so this whole idea of karma, that's what karma is. Karma will repay you for interrupting someone else. Now, what else does karma do? It separates you. It separates you from your neighbor. It separates you from your family, from loved ones. Now, God is calling us to help others, right? He's asking us to help them. Let me show you one more example of this in karma. In the beginning, when we were in the garden, Adam and Eve were in the garden, and the enemy came in, his first goal was to separate Adam and Eve from God. Once he achieved that, then he tried to separate Adam from Eve. And then he separated Adam and Eve from nature and from the animals. And that's still what he does today. Karma is a fantastic tool of the enemy to separate people from each other and their inability to help each other when they adopt karma. In Indian society, it's based on a caste system. And India is the primary, is the largest Hindu population in the world. In the caste system of India, If you're born into the lowest caste, the untouchables, you have to beg all your life. It is documented that parents will take their infant children born into that lowest caste system. And when they're infants, they will cut one of their limbs off so they can go through life maimed. So they'll be a better beggar as they go through life. So that when they die, they can be raised out of the lowest caste system and elevated into a new caste system and have a better life in the next one. That is what happens to the untouchables in the caste system. And that's what karma causes people to do. I hope you will never use the word karma again. Now, let me tell you what the truth is. The truth is what God reveals in scripture. It's called sowing and reaping. That which you sow is what you reap. Galatians 6, 7 and 9 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will also reap. And whatever, if you sow the flesh... And this last thing I would say about this is please don't pray to the universe. Okay. If you are just praying to the universe. Please pray from a false belief system. So please don't embrace that. 
The God who made all we see is involved in your life. He wants to be a part of the decisions of your life. He wants to know you intimately and be all of that. He wants to love you. He has the best for you. He's the one who calls out the stars by name at night and not one star is missing. Not one is lost, according to Psalms 147.4. He calls calls you by name. He knows you by name. He invites you into redemption. He invites you into relationship. He invites you into his family. Oh, the star is so beautiful. I've talked about it before. I try to make it a part of my day. In the mornings, I get up early and I read my Bible and I pray and I go outside and I wait for the sun to rise. And if I'm fortunate enough to get up early enough, I can still see the stars out. And that's a real treat, you know? And I, I thought about this. You know, when I get home, I'm not going to see the same stars you see. I don't live in a different universe, okay? Right? We have the same stars, right? But we see them differently. Because um, I have the same number of stars, but I also have a lot of artificial light where I live. And those artificial light, it diminishes my ability to see the natural light, the stars at night. And the same thing can be said about God. There are places in our lives where artificial lights enter in, and it crowds out our ability to see the wonder, the natural God present in our world. Are there some artificial sources of life in your light that are crowding out your ability to see God. God, and maybe you're trying to uh, search for God and find God, and maybe you're looking in the wrong place because you can't find him because you're not looking where he is. I thought of it like this. If you think of a person who looks throughout the night sky, but they're not searching for stars, they're searching for the sun. And they search every night, looking up at those stars, trying to find the sun but they can't. Now the stars have a very similar attribute, right? A very similar, similar composition, but they're not the sun. The sun can light your path. The sun can warm your coldness. The sun can radiate a glow on you. The sun can bring nourishing life. For those who are truly seeking or looking in the wrong place, that's what it's like for them. And until you're willing to step into the light and let the light drive away the darkness and shine on you and shine into your heart, you will never fully see God. If you're a seeker of truth, and if the truth is what you truly seek, there's overwhelming evidence for him. Jesus is here. He's calling you. He's inviting you to step out into a world to see him. He's asking you to come back to him, to show up and see what will happen. He's asking you, to see what he will do when you step into his side of life. He will show up and you'll see what happens. Things that are beyond explanation will begin to happen. Beyond science, beyond reason, because it's a God thing. And you will no longer accept the image of sin and the markings of sin and the wounds of sin and the disfigurements of sin that have been left on your life, on your soul. When you step up and you step out and you walk in that new path and you walk in that new light, are you a person who's trying to validate your wrong choices? Do you diminish others and degrade them when you don't like them? Do you bring the other person down thinking it's going to elevate you? You want to, it it draws you into a deeper quicksand of sin and you can't get out of it. It further illustrates the fallenness of all of us in our natural state. In Luke chapter four, verse 37, it says this. 
Now, for some of you, I'm going to say something that might challenge some of your belief systems from what you've been taught for a long time. So please don't shut me off immediately. Just remember that I don't write the letters. I just read the mail. Okay. All right. So for some of you have an idea that a person who's going to serve in a, a church and work for God, they have to be, um, they can't have a family. They have to be single and celibate. And I want to draw your attention to the fourth chapter of Luke's gospel, where we will quickly look at two events in the life of Christ. In verse 37, the report went out about him to every place in the surrounding region. In verse 38, he arose, Jesus, from the synagogue, entered into Simon's house. That's Simon Peter, okay? But Simon's wife, Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever, and they made a request of him concerning her. So he stood over her and he rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she arose and served them. And when the sun was setting, all those who had, that were sick were brought from various diseases around them, were brought to him and laid hands on them. And every one of them was healed. And demons came out, and many of them cried out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he rebuking them. He did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was a Christ. And when he, and the day was done, and he departed, he went into the deserted place. And the crowd sought him, and they came to find him, and they tried to find him. He's leaving them. And he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee, and Jesus has been teaching in the local synagogue, and he goes there to the home of Peter. And in verse 38, we see that Peter was married. Simon Peter was married. And his wife, for some reason, his mother-in-law was there with him in the house. We don't know why, but she was sick. And so Peter asked Jesus to please come and heal his mother-in-law. And word got out. Jesus went in verse 39, and he listened to their request. He went to the sick family member, and he stood over her, and he rebuked the fever, and it left her immediately. And word got out. People started showing up to be healed. And it would appear that the neighbors and the villagers, they knew that she had been sick for some time because word got out about the healing and they came and they wanted to be healed. And before the day was over, everybody who was sick and needed healing came and they were healed from all types of illnesses. And Jesus laid hands on them. Jesus did not shy away from one of them. Now pay attention to verse 41. As part of the healing process, it records this, and demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he rebuked them. He did not allow them to speak, for he, they knew that he was a Christ. Now, some of you have issues. Deep-seated bondage. Things you wrestle with that have pinned you to the floor over and over again. And you can't recover them. Every time you try and you say, Never again. But the dog has not long returned to his vomit. Are you tired of it? Are you ready to stop that pattern of self-destructive behavior? It's your choice. God never forces you. He never forces his way into anyone's heart. You have to open the door and let him come in. You say, that cannot be me. I'm a good person. I go to church. And all that might be true. But in verse 31 of the same chapter, something very interesting happened. Jesus went into Capernaum, the city of Galilee. He's teaching them on the Sabbaths. And this unknown teacher shows up. And he's going about, and they start gathering and listening to him. And he starts with the Bible verse. And in verse 32, it says this, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he had a word with authority. And how many times have you visited a church, and you knew the power of God was missing there? The Spirit of God was absent. You see, they had a form of godliness, but they denied the power thereof. And the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3, 5, that, um, having a form of godliness and denying the power thereof from such people turn away. 
They have a religious show, but they don't have a connection to the real God. They will act religious, but they reject the power that could make them truly godly. Stay away from those people. And verse 33, it continues, and it says this. Now in the synagogue, now not in the marketplace. Catch where Jesus is. He's in the synagogue. He's in the place of worship. He's not at grabbers. He's not at nippers. He's not on a boat, half naked on a Sunday and completely drunk. He's at the place of worship. And there was a man who had an unclean spirit, a demon. Well, that should give you pause, shouldn't it? Can that happen today? It can. Let's see. I command in the name of Jesus and by the stead of our Lord Jesus Christ, any unclean spirit who is here to manifest himself now on the authority and blood of Christ. And he continued, he said this, and he, this man, when the cleans, when the, with a clean spirit, he said this, he cried out with a loud voice. And what did he say? He said, Jesus said to the spirit, let him alone. And the spirit said, what do we have to do with you today, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of Israel. Now, do you see what's happening here? I'm not making this up. It's in your Bible. It's in the Gospel of Lucas in chapter 4. It's in verse 34. This man who's controlled by the demon is pretending to serve God. He's attending worship. He's at the appointed place at the appointed time. And God showed up. And that's the last thing this demon thought would happen that day, that he would face his judge, his match. Firstly, the demons know. They know what's coming. They know God. James tells us this in 2.19. You say you have faith, that you believe there's a one God, you're good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble. One version says this, it says the demons believe there is a God and they shudder. Acknowledging that there is a power greater than you in the universe, in the spiritual realm. That's not good enough. Oh, I believe in God. I've heard that from many people here on this island. And some of them, sadly, or on the Hell Express. It makes you think about it. Just saying there is a God does not make you safe. James is the writer of this verse. James is the half-brother of Jesus. He is in charge of the first church in Jerusalem. This isn't Peter. This isn't Paul. This is John. So when James says this, the kid brother to Jesus that grew up with him, when he says this, he's not talking out the side of his neck. He's speaking truth. So I'm warning you right now, your prayers to the universe are not prayers to God. Your meditations to the cosmic oneness are not drawing you closer to God. God is a personal being. He is not an impersonal force as the Eastern religions would teach you. You're being deceived if you're believing that. And as much as I love Star Wars, as much as I love Star Wars, the force is not an accurate depiction of the reality of who God is. Demons say there is a God and they shudder because they know they face a judgment from that God for what they've done against him. There is no redemption for fallen angels. There's only redemption for fallen people. Hebrews 2.16 tells us this. But we know that Christ did not take hold of angels, the fallen angels, to give them a helping hand, a delivering hand. He did not take hold of them. He took hold of the fallen descendants of Abraham, that's us, to reach out and bring us the helping hand of deliverance. Those who chose to follow Lucifer in the fall and becoming Satan share in his final judgment in the lake of fire, according to Revelation chapter 20, verses 10 through 15. The demons recognize that Jesus, and they address him as the Holy One of Israel. That's a title Isaiah uses when he writes about Messiah coming. In verse 35, but Jesus rebuked this demon. He said, be silent and come out of him. And the demon threw the man down before him, and all were 
shocked at this, and they could not believe what they had seen. Jesus was not concerned about everybody knowing that he was the promised Messiah. Jesus directed his attention to helping people, freeing poor people, this poor man who was in bondage to the devil. The Holy One of Israel triumphed in the authority that he had, and the devil had to flee. All the people were overcome with amazement, and they asked him one thing, what is this message? What is this authority and power? He commands the unclean spirits to come out, and Jesus truly enters into the territory of your life. There's no longer room for demons and devils. God pushes them out. The man left the place of worship, knowing the real God and controlled by the real God. And that spirit could not bear the spirit of the living God. And he cried out in terror, let us alone. And he fled. He ran away. Now, when the demon had thrown him down and went away, and they were amazed, they said, what kind of word is this? What is this authority? What is this power? What did the Messiah come to the world to do? Isaiah says he came to open the eyes of the blind, to bring the prisoners out of bondage, to take them free from that dungeon, to free those who sit in darkness. Isaiah says it this, Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you in the womb, who will help you. Fear not. Do not be afraid. God is with you. God sees you. God knows your pain. He knows the choices you've made and how painful some of those choices have been. He sees you. He saw you walk in here today. He loves you. He sees the mess you've made. He did not force you to choose his way. He allowed you to choose your own faults, to mess up. He wants to gently come back to you and wait and slowly calling you back in day after day, inviting you in for this moment, for this time, for this moment in time, for right now, he's here. He's asking you. He freed you over 2,000 years ago. He went through the process of giving you the power and authority to fight the bondage and oppression, to get out of those dark spiritual forces from those demons. Says this, for I will pour water on him who is thirsty. Do you have a thirst in your life? A desire which all the answers and pathways of human thought and practice just can't quench? How much water does God have for your parched, dry soul? Verse 3 says this. It says he has floods of water. Floods on the dry ground. You ever seen a flood on dry ground? It's so much water when it hits the ground, the ground can't contain it. It spills over everywhere. And when Jesus floods your life with the water of life, it fills you up and then you spill over onto everyone and everything that surrounds you. I will pour my spirit on your descendants. Are you ready for a new spirit? Are you ready to shake off those old ways? To have a new identity? Have you identified yourself in the past? Verse 5 of Isaiah says this. One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write on his hand, the Lord's. The name of himself shall be the Lord of Israel. Do you identify yourself as one that belongs to God? Please see, there are only two arenas. There are only two teams on the field of life. If you don't claim to be in the field of Christ and take him as your own, any other label you use to identify yourself is just a proxy for Satan. Behind that label is a losing team. So I say this to you. Don't just say, I am my own man. I'm my own woman. It's just me. No. It's not just you. You've been deceived. 
the good news is, is there's still time to switch sides, to get on the winning side, to realize the error of your ways and to bask in the glowing mercy of God through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. In verse six, this is how he describes himself. He says, I am the Lord, the King of Israel. I am the Redeemer. I am the first. I am the last. There is no God besides me. I am the source. I am the destination. I am the Redeemer. I am the King. I am the commander. I am God. Come to me. Find your forgiveness. Find your new path. Find your new life. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful that you call out to us, that you offer us a new path, a new way today. I ask you to be with us, please, Lord, as we go through this week, to live in that new life, that new path, that new redemption that is only available through your son, Jesus. And I ask God, if there's anybody here today that feels they need to take that step of faith, to take that walk down that new path, to give up that old spirit and take in your new spirit, that they would just raise their hands right now so that I could pray for them in this moment as we gather together. Father, thank you for that hand. I see that hand. I thank you for that life and what it means. Dear God in heaven, I ask you to to fill our hearts as redeemers made new in you, to have that new life, to surrender our spirit to your spirit, to listen to your spirit, to obey your spirit, and ask it be done to the mighty name of Jesus and his power. And right now in the halls of heaven, a new name is written in the book of life because of what one man did here today. Thank you, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen.